7. This is Greg Duncan. I'm Gordon Beaming. I'm Josh Garverick. And this is Martin Woodward. Wow. What? Four hosts on one show? What? You guys listened to the last show when it was just me, right? And this is kind of payback, or no? Yeah, there we go. You, you, you wait for some hosts and, like, how many turn up? It's going to be a big show today, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the, all that feedback about Greg being the only regular host and you guys decided that you needed to save the show? And... Yeah, we're going to overcompensate. Sounds good. <laughs> well, we have a great show. We have a very different show. I'm really excited about this. This is essentially a panel. You, you could go to Build and go to a panel like this with, with the kind of people that we have on. Now, I'm going to introduce four people, four guests. So there's going to be eight people on the show. Any of you longtime listeners know that that's probably, I don't know, six too many? No. It'll be great. First off, we have Oh, Stephen, you know what? I should have asked how to pronounce your name up front because I'm going to butcher. Just Sorry, it's Stephen Murawski. Stephen Murawski. Stephen yeah. is a principal engineer on the community engineering team at Chef and a Microsoft Cloud and Data Center Management MVP. You know, I read this like three times before trying this. <sighs> Stephen. <It's all> right. <laughs> I, I also respond to like, hey, you or, you know, so whatever. <laughs> uh, Steven is active in the Chef, PowerShell and DevOps communities locally and online. Prior to arriving at Chef, Steven was a sysadmin for Microsoft Focus Infrastructures, most notably at Stack Overflow, where he pioneered the use of Windows PowerShell desired state configuration on Windows Server Operating System. Steven, welcome to the show. Thank you. Next up, we have Rob Scheifer. Did I get that right, Rob? Schiefer. Schiefer. Yeah. We were talking about this in the pre-show. Um, my brain is set to stupid today, so I have to apologize to everybody out there listening. Uh, it's better than my asshole flag being set to true, you know? <laughs> so, I was just thinking uh, that. I was just thinking that. You flipped the bit, man. <laughs> today, it's like, I, I think I've got that, you know, the the um, on the old PCs, you could set the, the performance speed turbo mode. Yeah, I'm not in turbo mode today. But uh, so let's do, Rob is a solution architect for EBS CO Industries, a global company with businesses and information services in a wide range of industries headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. Rob has a passion for improving the speed of value delivery to customers, works with agile development teams to design, build well-architected solution, and evangelizes DevOps practices to anyone who will listen and some who won't. I know how you feel, Rob. Yeah, no, good to be here. <laughs> Uh, he's also the co-founder of the Birmingham.net meetup in Birmingham, Alabama. That's me. All right. Next one. This is easy. I can do this one. Mark Gray. Mark Gray is a program manager in the PowerShell team at Microsoft. He's currently the PM owner for PowerShell. PowerShell. Stupid flag. <laughs> PowerShell desired state configuration. He has worked in various management technologies since joining Microsoft 10 years ago. Future of management is extremely exciting with the advent of DevOps, including continuous integration, continuous delivery, delivery, delivery. <laughs> you know, I wonder... Um, Gold Wave, we use to edit the show. I don't think there is a stupid filter on there. But I have to look. They should and you said this was the easy one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, where were we? Uh, oh, and he's incredibly thrilled to be part of that DevOps. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now the trick is with my name to spell it. Is it an AY or EY? <laughs> Surprising how many people get that one wrong. The the great advantage of being a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Which I always have to when we have somebody new on and they had their video camera, it's like, oh God, no, turn off the video. We are faces made for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Our last Our last uh, last but not least, Michael Green. Michael is a program manager at Microsoft working on the PowerShell team. His primary responsibility is to empower people to make quality contributions to the Azure management community. Michael has been a full-time IT professional since 2001 and is very excited about the new DSC configurations project repository on GitHub, and we'll have the link in the show notes to that. Great for short BIOS. And if you're ever uh, tracking both Mark and I in a project where your initials are used in place of your avatar, <laughs> such as Skype, that screws us up all the time. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Now, we've got some news stories that we're going to try to go through really quickly. 
Um, I've, we've, uh, tilted them, focused them towards the whole DevOps thing. So if there's something of interest or something that you found interesting, please, uh, speak up. We're all going to step on each other's, uh, voices here and there, but you know, it's more to be, it's that, that excitement to be part of the show more than anything. But first I promised Oscar, my partner in crime that I would bring up this story Friday before a three-day weekend, just a couple weekends ago for me, I wanted to look at TFS 2017 on my main machine, and I want to check, do a readiness check on that machine. So for because I had this stupid bit turned on even then, I said, oh, well, I can just, well, I can just install TFS 2017 on my production server, run the readiness test, and if the readiness tests fail, well, then I just won't install TFS 2017. And I know you're all scratching your heads. <laughs> and going, Greg, you're an idiot. And that's exactly what I I installed TFS 2017, which, as you all know, uninstalls 2015, puts all the bits in places there, but doesn't do the actual database upgrade. So there I was in the intermediate state. I'm like, oh, crap. I don't believe I just did that. How could I, a producer of this podcast, do something so stupid? But then I looked back and I said, okay, listen to all my all the past guests all my co-hosts, the 2017 upgrade has been so smooth, it seems, for just about everyone. What am I going to do? Am I going to roll back, uninstall 2017, and reinstall 2015? Or am I going to bite the bullet and just drive no forward? And Good man. Do I'm the upgrade. I, I, I sat on it for like three or four seconds, thinking really, really hard for those three or four seconds. I said, go, do the upgrade. Walk through it. Did you have a backup? Yeah, 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 yeah. We actually had a backup okay. of all my stuff. Um, and they're it, stored off-site, too, you know, so we could even roll back to that if needed to be, yeah. And I, it's times like that <laughs> I open up Buck Hodges in IM, and I say, so I'm at this date. If I roll forward, what's the chances of success? <laughs> Dude, like, and it all worked, didn't it? It, it, it worked um, so amazingly well that it scared me because everything just worked. All my users did didn't even, if I hadn't copped to being a bonehead, a bonehead doing this, uh, they would have never known we upgraded until they went to the website and saw the new website and everything. But all my other users here in the building, all the on-prem stuff worked. All my builds, all my continuous delivery, all my private agents and everything just worked. It was awesome. I know I, as the you know like product group representative, shouldn't be quite as surprised about that as I just was. But <laughs> it, that's awesome. I mean, that's how it should be. That is the experience we want everybody to get. And to be honest mo uh, that is the experience i hear like most of the time but uh yeah dude that's that's that that took some cojones that did i'm, I'm impressed I'm it worked for you. yeah that could have been a you know a clm a career limiting moment there but uh, it ended up working out well and now we're on 2017.1 you know latest bits and loving it nice god yeah that there was, you go uh, just, just do it just do it is the story uh, yeah just do it. and that was a, one of those you know a learning moment and i when i shared this with my team and we did three stand-ups later in the day and i shared with each one the bonehead that i did because i believe in that kind of transfer and it's like it's a learning moment and even you know old guys like me do bonehead move but uh, i have to admit that would have been the point that i probably would have run up to my server closet and ripped out one of the raid discs just to be sure <laughs> you know what i mean like i know i've got a backup but I can't be bothered restoring from it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take out one half of my mirror just in case. But uh, yeah, dude, I'm impressed. Good so on the, you. The um, what is that term? Uh, 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 the the learning thing is that the upgrade from 2015.3 to 2017.1 can be, and in most cases, is really smooth. But just when you get those TFS 2017 bits and install and just be ready and realize exactly what you're doing. Uh, there are a number of ways to do pre-production upgrades on different machines, read through the docs, give that stuff a try, always have that backup ready. Um, but once you move to 2017, you'll love it. Oh, enough of that. Awesome. well in the end. Yeah, Try definitely. Well, congratulations and welcome to 2017. <laughs> have you authored your deployment as code so that next time you can just kick go and, and rebuild your environment and then replay your data and be back where you started? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm making noise so our silence filter doesn't filter that part. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I see. That's kind of how the setup is. We'll leave it at that. All right. You can script the setup. 
Right, should we do the news? Let's do the news. Martin, you got news? Oh, man. I'm, got, you told me to like, do the news quietly, and then you give me the announcement post. So I'm going to whip through this like <laughs> super-duper quick. But, um, you know, click on the show notes. You might have noticed we've got Bill coming up. So a metric ton of stuff has arrived for people to for people's delight. So um, delivery timeline markers was actually quite a cool one in the new delivery plan stuff. And it's actually quite good. You can put, you know, like little metrics in, and it's always good. Um, the new Git graph feature is amazing, and uh, it's just really, really good. I'm really like, it's really good. And I don't know. Again, I shouldn't be as surprised as it was, but it's awesome, and it's been getting a lot of usage, a lot of traction. People are loving it. So, um, if you want to visualize your Git repository, go do it. You, um, combine that with a feature we talked about the other week, where you've got the import feature, so you can actually, you know, import. Um, into your, your repository over from GitHub or a TFVC repository and go examine that history. It's awesome. So go look at that. Um, there's some stuff around packaging. There was oh a cool thing to, you know, on the hosted build agents and you want to actually, ins, you know, install some prerequisites before running the build. There's a great thing to help you do that now, which is awesome. There's some improvements about how SSH deployment's done. Um, one of the uh, service manager endpoints for Azure, we've actually added the um, the government clouds into those as well, so help you get into that if that's what your thing is. If you if that's you know what your customers are in, then you can do some of that stuff. Well, I'm trying to rip through these as quickly as I can. There's a bunch of things around, um, you know, like non.app. So um, a bunch of stuff around uh, Python and PHP stuff for deployment, deploying of Azure, which Gopi kind of, uh, you know, uh, preview, you know, told us a little bit about um, in the uh, two couple of shows ago. So uh, that's up there, as well as some cool. Um, uh, the ability to publish code coverage results for Java builds as well. That's something I always was trying to get working for years and years and years, and that's up now. So yay, team. They've done an amazing job. Uh, the Jenkins integration is getting better and better, and you can keep Jenkins jobs if you want to use Jenkins agents, and everyone's frightened about you know changing their builds when they're up and running, so that's that. There's extensions for publishing into the Google Play and iOS uh, stores. There's, oh, I need to breathe. <gasps> there's a new extension hub for the marketplace publishers, which is coming in, and there's some there's some additional stuff coming into the marketplace as well for publishers. But basically, helping you see how well your extensions are doing and get some data and get some metrics and being able to do that sort of stuff and uh, contact your extension customers. Things a whole a whole raft of features there. Um, also. Uh, we put into preview um, some new widgets that, that Aaron Bjork's commented about. Um, some really cool like graph widgets for your dashboards and things. So you know, trying to figure out what your lead time is, trying to figure out cycle times and, and cumulative flow diagrams. So um, and Aaron also talks about some stuff that's coming up on the bat, that's on the backlog next in terms of um, a burn up graph and burn down graphs and trend and guidelines and all that sort of thing. So that's cool. And you see, I'm whipping through these as quickly as I can. <laughs> and then uh, Jeremy Epling's done a cool um, update on Team Explorer. So basically, we released a bunch of bug fixes to do with Team Explorer in Visual Studio 2017. Um, a lot of the stuff around the Git side, but yeah, you can go grab those. And remember that you can also install Team Explorer standalone nowadays as well. So that'll do for the that'll do for the announcement posts. But yeah, we're getting ready for build, so uh, it's, it's it's pretty busy. Josh, how about you? Well, we got a couple of things in the the book market. Uh, our friend Ritesh Modi, who is a senior technical evangelist at Microsoft, has published a book called DevOps with Server 2016. And there's an, a book excerpt out there, and there's a link in the show notes for that, introducing DevOps. So uh, actually taking a little bit of time to go through and explain uh, the different parts of it and um, give a good overview for the, the entire book. Also, there's a free book out there through uh, the DevOps Collective, and that's the ops perspective, which a lot of times, at least from from my experience, and I don't know if you guys have experienced the same thing, but a lot of times we approach uh, the DevOps partnership as the dev side, and, and there's definitely a huge ops component as well on the other half trying to help bridge that gap between uh, development and the end user. So uh, it's an interesting read. It's got some, got some uh, pretty interesting insights into um, some perceptions around what happens to operations 
during a DevOps transformation and things like that. So interesting stuff. Again, that, that second one is free and the DevOps Collective site has a whole bunch of stuff for uh, community involvement, events, and everything else. So check it out. Very cool. So um, I've got a couple stories. Uh, one was first is uh, from Donovan Brown. Considerations on using deployment slops. <laughs> Slops. Dude, have you been, like sticker. I thought you said uh, deployment I, I'm slops. I'm the one that I yeah, exactly. Slops. Yeah, you really have taken the <laughs> la, 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 la. try again, Greg. <laughs> did, did, have you had a few before the the? <laughs> I wish I'd probably be doing a lot better. <laughs> this this sobriety thing sucks. Uh, considerations on using deployment slots in your DevOps pipeline. <laughs> it's a nice. It's actually not a very long post, but it's a great overview of. Um, what these deployment slots are. and But you have to take care when you start to integrate them into your DevOps pipeline. And that's what this post of his is about, how to do that. And the big one here, never do anything for the first time in production. Never, ever, ever. So uh, so you don't have to go and rip your RAID drive out to keep it as a backup. Yeah, the thing I loved about this post as well was that it was very much... Um, it was like real advice. You know what I mean? When you see the slots demoed, they're always like, oh, yeah, you could have one be test and one be prod. And Donovan points out why that's an absolutely stupid idea and this is how you should do it. You know, And I'm like, oh, this is great. So, yep, good post. Next post, configuring your release pipelines for safe deployments. Again, related on it. Um, for large and high-scale applications, you know, doing this DevOps. Okay, I got a question for you. The ops and DevOps, is it capital O, capital B, capital S, or capital O, lowercase p, lowercase s? It's camel cased, so it's capital D, E, V, capital O, P, S. It depends on what you read. Because <laughs> like the book Effect, Effective DevOps, they actually have a whole little intro uh, it, as to why they're going to capitalize DevOps the way they do. And, oh, yeah. right. <laughs> so we so. have an awesome insight. Are they saying like, that? Are they saying that they're on equal footing? You have to capitalize them both because they're peers? Um, I think actually in the book, they lowercase the whole thing, and they explain why they do that for consistency across the whole book. Yeah. Nice. I, I think it will become lowercase uh, at some point, you know what I mean, as it becomes more common, as it becomes much more common. It's like, it's like Internet was capital I for such a long time. Is there a consensus among this group as to whether the word or the term DevOps should be used to describe tooling or not? Because some people really take offense to that, and some people just don't care. And I'm kind of on the don't care fence. I, I guess it's not that I don't care; it's that I'm pretty flexible in how that's used. So for for me, this is Martin. The, uh, personally, um, DevOps is so much more, and people we we as technologists tend to just think about tooling, and if that's what you're going to pick up, then you'll kind of fail. So, but but I'm like you; I'm not very religious, you know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to shout at anybody over the issue. I try to avoid it myself, but. Uh, yeah. I definitely don't feel angry about it. Yeah, this is Steve. So um, I hear this. I, I hear this kind of thing a lot, and um, I, I don't think it's not that you know it's not that tools aren't uh, and tools aren't DevOps. There's a lot more to DevOps, uh, as Martin said, um, but certain tools and and certain tool chains uh, tend to reinforce the better cultural practices and the better operational practices than others. You can do DevOps with mainframes and you can do DevOps with, with any kind of software. Um, you can, but some, some software sets you up, you know, to kind of fall into the pit of success a little better than others. So that's kind of my two cents there. Yeah, this is Rob. I, I agree. I think uh, to Martin's point too, though, I mean, it's, it, it's not just tools, right? You got to have the people and the process uh, aligned with that as well. And if sometimes when you talk about the tools, people focus on the tools and they think that's all you need, right? Exactly. Yes, I do see that. Yeah, yeah, this is Mark. I, I totally agree with what everyone's saying. And I think the, the problem that people have is they a lot of folks, like you said, um, focus on tooling. Um, and it'll probably be a short-lived um, experiment in DevOps if they only focus on the, the uh, tooling. Well, well, tooling's a budget item, and uh, but your people and your culture are are harder. They're harder problems, right? Yeah, for sure. I can't send out an RFP for better people. And, 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 and in, in a lot of cases, you don't need better people. You need a better culture to enable the people you have to be successful. Because in most cases, you have the right people. And it's a lot of time, like what, I think what, you're, um, what I see, it's different mindset a lot of times, especially when you're in big companies that have been doing something one way for a long time. 
Um, so it's a different mindset to get into to, for example, failing, uh, allowing things to fail and um, stuff like that. So. All right, let's, yeah, let's, get, back, back, let's get back to our news items. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> I want to close out on this one post because what's nice about this one is that it's Shashank Bensel. Um, he shares the safe deployment guidelines that they follow at Microsoft and how they configure their pipelines or release definitions in VSTS to enforce those guidelines. So this isn't some esoteric thing. It's how they actually do it with their different regions and going from uh, test to canary to pilot customers to light load regions. This post covers that, and we'll have the links in the show notes for that. Oh, um, so this next this next post, I'm actually going to spend it looks quite a long one. I'm going to spend some time on after this podcast. Um, saying I haven't played around with much is containers. Uh, and basically, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name, um, but this guy has, has a post on creating a CI and CD workflow with uh, Kubernetes, Jenkins, and the Azure Container Service. Um, scrolling through it, it says a 12-minute read. Um, I feel like I might have my stupid flag on as well because this <laughs> feels like it's going to take me a lot longer to get through. Um, but it's very detailed. Um, I mean, it looks like every single command at this image, image um, like walkthroughs the whole way through as well. Um, the, yeah, the the next post is sort of a um, sort of like um, almost like a highlight of a lot of other posts. I think um, it's basically have how to build and deploy um, Java web apps using um, team services in Azure. So it's got uh, lots of headings in there and lots of links to other places. And basically just highlighting that, you know, team services and I guess TFS as well is not, is not .NET world focused. And I think nowadays, if there's anyone that does still think that, um, they've obviously not been on the internet for the last like two years at least. Um, one of the cool things that I just found out from this post is the, that java.visualstudio.com is a whole sort of subsite um, focused just on Java inside team services, which is quite cool. And then the last person I'll share now is uh, on Visual Studio team services integration with Jenkins. So there's it's basically highlighting all the different ways that team services can integrate with uh, Jenkins. It goes over the Jenkins service hooks, um, Jenkins build and release tasks. It mentions um, using Jenkins with your pull requests, um, getting your test results and code coverage uh, all running. It's quite cool. There's, there's even a video in there how, uh, like showing you uh, demos of, of how to use this stuff. Cool. Very, very cool. Speaking of integration, uh, the rock star, Abel Wang, has, has given us a post on integrating smoke tests into your continuous delivery pipeline. And he, he covers a couple of different areas, not only with automated UI testing, but also with uh, mobile testing. So incorporating Xamarin Test Cloud into, into your pipeline. It's a pretty quick read, uh, but it's, it, it kind of lays the foundation for getting that, that automated smoke testing right into the pipeline, which is good stuff. So, Gordon, dude, you've been blogging up a storm, man, it looks like. Yeah, I've, I've freed up some time recently. So I started a new company at the start of last month. Um, so I've got like an hour less driving a day to and from work. Um, so you can, it's amazing how much blogging you can get done with that extra time. Um, <laughs> Did you say so, you'd started a new company or you started with a new company? Oh, no, I started at a new company. I was going to say, you've started a new company and you've got less time. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, carry on. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, so, so what I wanted to do is, so I'm one of those people that I really, I mean, blogging to share with the community is awesome. But I also blog to remember how to do stuff. Um, and I wanted to blog how you set up your, your CI builds for .NET Core. But then it felt a bit empty just sort of jumping into it. So I made another blog post that's just how you do it with your regular .NET builds. And then sort of in the .NET Core build, highlighted how that was different from your normal builds and that it's not specifically just click next, 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 done. You actually have to put some work in. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's that long. There's lo- lots of images, not that much text. Um, and basically, just the .NET Core one specifically just highlights uh, sort of why your test results aren't there, um, why we, things aren't like when you think it's building but it's not actually building, and why your package your uh, packages aren't being restored, and basically just all those niggles that are quite frustrating when you're used to your your regular new build, Visual Studio, Next, okay, build, and you can move on. Nice. Cool. Thanks, Jim. 
Um, just one last one as well on the news before we jump into the panel discussion. Um, Abhishek did a post about how we use release management, and it kind of links into the stuff Greg was talking about earlier. And know, it was a really good post, wasn't it? It was just kind of talking about how the VSTS team use RM to deploy VSTS. Um, I just love that, that. All those posts are just fascinating for me. I learned a bunch of stuff. So um, go check that out and ho- hopefully uh, look out for the next part. Have you guys been enjoying these DevOps? Like, we've got a ton of DevOps posts here, and these were all part of the spring into DevOps sort of, you know, month. Has, has it been good? Has it been, have you been enjoying the content that's been coming out? This is Rob. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Good to hear it. Well, we're going to keep it up. We're going to keep it on through build, and then we'll, we'll sort of, you know, we had a, good, a few good webcasts as well, so hopefully it's been good stuff. We're trying to just get everybody, you know, up to the point where they're confident enough that they can start um, start deploying stuff and start setting up continuous deployment. So there we yeah. go. As, as an outsider, hearing about you know how Microsoft dog foods these their own products is, is especially neat to, to read about, and especially from so many different people in the company. I might do a. I saw some stats come out internally the other day on usage. You know, and we haven't had a usage post for a while, have we? The numbers are astounding, basically. So I might I might like. I might go out. I might go ask somebody, or I might just publish them. But I might go do a blog post about that as well anyway, while, I'm, while I'm flying out to build. I think that'd be cool. Right. Anyway, yeah. let's have a panel discussion. Well, but Greg. first, real quick, first though, I, I want to yep. talk about the uh, really quick though, the Sonar Cube, which I, we've been using here for a while now. They've upgraded their VSTS and TFS extension to 2.1, which integrates all the latest MS Build um, scanners and, and runners and components and stuff, which is important if you're doing. Uh, .NET Core 1.1, and you've moved to the CS Proj, so you want to get this one. And it's easy to upgrade those. It's Sonar Cube. I love Sonar Cube. Second thing is that I wanted to give a shout-out uh, to Joseph Bourne, and he highlights an end-depend extension for TFS 2017 and VSTS, and this extension just looks awesome. I cannot describe how cool I think this extension is because it takes all that SonarCube stuff that you can't integrate into your dashboard. And I would love to hear if anybody has some suggestions on integrating into my TFS dashboard, my um, SonarCube results beyond the build tag that it puts on every build. But um, it creates an entire end-to-pen hub with multiple tabs within it. And one of the coolest things about this, the end pen extension, is that there's no actual database component. All of the artifacts that it uses are part of the build artifact. So you don't have to stand up a SQL server or uh, any other kind of server on it. You just install this extension, you configure it, and, and you go. I just thought, it, and it looks great. It's got click-down yeah, stuff. Man, if you're looking to manage technical debt and you're a big fan of Endopen, you'll definitely have to check out this extension. That's definitely how to do it, isn't it? I've been, I've been really, really impressed with how the extensibility's been done. And I know we created it kind of for ourselves in a certain extent so that we could ex- so we could all the teams in Microsoft could extend you know VSTS have a need to because they all use VSTS now so um, the extensibility points are really rich but man it's amazing cool right go on that's should we do the panel discussion yeah let's do that let's get started so let's get let's get started let's throw this one up there so um, I was chatting with Sam Guggenheimer just yesterday actually and we were talking about a couple of different things and then we were talking about infrastructure as code so who who wants to talk about uh, who wants to explain what infrastructure as code is and 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 why we should use it? I'm going to so, point on someone if you don't. <laughs> you don't, you don't <laughs> Stephen, go on. All right. So, um, so infrastructure as code is a a way of modeling our infrastructure in in a declarative fashion, so that um, rather than having like a deployment script where you say you know install web server, you know. Uh, Make change this file uh, and set the permissions over here. Um, rather than having like this, this procedural thing that our script will go and do, where you have to start from a known state and get to another hopefully known state, uh, you declare what you want your server to look like, and then it becomes the agent's job to get it there. And so you you end up having this uh, experience where it's basically, you know, I, I say I want a web server. If it web servers, if IIS is installed, hey, everything's happy. If it's not, it's the job of the agent, whether it's desired state configuration, whether it's Chef, whether it's Puppet, whatever that kind of tool is, to get it to that to get to that state. And what where this is really helpful is in um, as we look at how our infrastructure evolves over time. Um, when we have like the deployment scripts that are very you know, very uh, 
prescriptive about the direction that they take. You have to go and follow and flow through the control, go through the uh, control flow. You have to look at what the history of the system was to kind of have just to be able to reason about what I need to do to change it to get to where I want to be versus I can look at this declarative document that's basically just a bunch of key values um, and and some you know typing around it and get a much better sense of what the state of that system is and what I would what you know what modifications I need to do you know to to make that system go and it also makes it then easier because now I have a common way to represent the state of the system for my dev team for my ops team for the guys who are on call at two in the morning and something goes wrong and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with a particular system because uh, one server is misbehaving, but all, you know the five others that are in that same workload aren't. Uh, are they're doing just fine? Um, and trying to figure out what that you know, what might be that misconfiguration or something like that. So it, it, it provides a little bit of sanity, and then the the real you know the real benefits start to be realized when we we take that as code part of thing and we start realizing hey we can apply software development methodologies to managing our infrastructure. So one of my favorite books is uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code by Michael Feathers. And if you apply infrastructure as code to your environment, you can pretty much change that book. Uh, and everywhere you see Working Effectively with Legacy Code, you say Working Effectively with Legacy Infrastructure. And you can apply all of those patterns to how you would go about you know, going into an unknown code base and adding some testing and some, some conf- levels of confidence and behavior to that old code base. You could do that into internal, into existing infrastructure. Or I can look at a book like Continuous Delivery and figure out, hey, guess what? Delivery pipelines, they're a good thing for my infrastructure too. It's not just, you know, it's not just this blob of text that we stick alongside our code. It's, it's, it is code that we evolve over time. We, we can apply, you know, uh, test-driven development. You know, that, that's one of the reasons uh, I'm super glad to see uh, Rob on the, on the call here because uh, he did a great talk at, at, about this at, uh, PowerShell Summit. Um, you can you can apply uh, integration testing type uh, type patterns, uh, linting. You can apply a whole CI workflow to your infrastructure, and it, it it changes the way that we work with our operations staff, with development, and with being able to deliver change in our organizations. And literally, when he says infrastructure, this is Michael. Uh, he's talking about. All of the things that over the years we went and manually built out, uh, so domain controllers. Uh, I, I, this is why I asked about your TFS environment earlier. I mean, if you have that entire deployment mechanism stored in source control, and then not just as a bunch of hacked together scripts, but as a definitive, this is how it should look. And in the event that it falls over, I mean, obviously you've got the data restore, which is always the more the more complicated part, but as far as building that back up and more importantly, being able to evaluate whether or not it's going to work correctly after the upgrade and things like that, you just use that, use that solution, you know, kind of like the deployment slops, <laughs> the deployment slots, just stand it up into a test environment, evaluate it, everything looks okay. I mean, I do think that the data uh, is the more complicated part of a lot of these scenarios, but there's a million reasons why I'm finding that this pattern really works. I think one of the other things, this is Mark, one of the other things that it allows you to do um, as code is you can use existing systems like source control and stuff like that so you can track changes and all that kind of stuff so you don't run into the issue that many organizations have out there when something blows up in the middle of the night and your um, execs come and say, what the hell changed? And you have to go, uh, let me go figure out, run some scripts and try to figure out what changed. So it gives you that um, tracking mechanism as well at the very basic level to actually know what changed from if anything goes wrong or anything like that. So... I mentioned what what options do people have for doing infrastructure as code? You mentioned Chef, Puppet, uh, DSG, Desired State Configuration. Is is ARM um, one of those things as well? Uh, you know what what options do people have? Yes. So uh, when we when we talk about like Desired State Configuration, oh, this is Steve by the way. Uh, when we talk about Desired State Configuration or Chef or Puppet, we're typically talking about a configuration uh, mechanism to manage one particular machine. Then we have ARM, which is more like provisioning out environments. And there's other tools in this space as well. Um, you know, AWS has their variant of this. 
Uh, there's Terraform, which is a, a tool from uh, HashiCorp, which allows you to target a bunch of different uh, clouds as well as uh, virtualization providers in kind of this declarative fashion. And so, yeah, it, usually um, usually we see people start with you know one or the other. They're either going to start with ARM or they're going to start with DSC or they're going to start with Chef. Um, and it kind of depends on where you're feeling the pain at first. And, uh, you know, do we, you know, it, what, what makes it, uh, you know, if we're looking at moving to the cloud, for example, what, what makes, what's our blocker to doing that? Well, usually one of the first is how do we set up our systems? And so very often we'll see people focus kind of on that initial machine setup scenario uh, if they're looking to move legacy workloads. If they're looking to greenfield something, then you start seeing them, you know, uh, go the arm route first. And, okay, because we, we're standing stuff up fresh. Um, I can I can throw a custom script extension on there, and guess what? It's going to just like lay down everything I need, and you know, uh, unicorns and and ninja cats, and, <laughs> and, and everything's fine, right? And, uh, <laughs> and but um, it, it really depends, kind of, on the scenario that that where you're feeling pain, or where or where or what. Uh, what's going to be your biggest blocker and as to what, where you kind of tackle first. Um, but th- yes, they're both definitely, uh, they're both definitely in the, in the infrastructure as code camp. Um, it's just the scale at which they work. Yeah, and I keep hearing people, this is Michael again. Um, I guess I, I've, I've heard the same terms repeated a few times now, and I really like these definitions. I hear people uh, saying provision, deploy, configure. And so, Uh, And more often than not, when they're using the word provision, then they mean standing up the environment that uh, the compute is going to live in. So the storage, the networking capabilities, et cetera, uh, like where that server is going to live. And then deploy, I hear used a lot as the server has been brought online, but it needs an operating system. So we're going to deploy the OS into the operating system and then configure as, okay, now the operator, it's like, it's almost like the Russian dolls, you know, they keep uh, expanding out or like an onion with many layers, but you know, at some point the operating system is online and now you need to put something on the operating system to get the value out of whatever service it's going to be. So uh, you end up using a configuration as code to configure no, uh, components of the operating system or put an application and service on it and it's start those things up. And so I really like that definition of provision, deploy, configure, but the release pipeline concept applies equally well across these. So even though ARM would tend to uh, uh, apply more towards provision where you're standing up all of the environments inside of it, and then you know uh, you might have a deployment pipeline um, that either creates an operating system image that you would use in your private and public clouds. It could be um, that you're using a, a deployment uh, pipeline to create images that you're going to use for physical machines or the case may be. But the point is that the process is still the same. You're still storing that information as code, running your tests against it so that you're error-proofing yourself and then letting it go uh, into test, be evaluated, and then move towards production. So that error-proofing to me is really, really valuable. I'm a, a very uh, error-prone person, a very fallible human being, and I take a lot of comfort in being able to write tests that check myself as I'm going through these infrastructure build-out procedures. So, um, I'll see Greg. This is Steve here. Um, uh, one thing that M- Michael might have been kind of obliquely referencing um, is he and I did a white paper a while back called the Release Pipeline Model uh, and targeted kind of at IT pros and uh, creating that kind of pipeline for infrastructure so that you know, when we say release pipeline model, that's that's kind of the uh, what we were talking about. And Mark uh, was kind enough to build a lab around that concept. So that, that's kind of where I started roping folks into this conversation. <laughs> yeah, we settled on the name release pipeline for that because there was a great white paper around release pipelines, uh, you know, looking specifically at practices for Visual Studio. So there's all these terms. That's why I brought up, uh, you know, should we call it DevOps tools or not in the beginning? Because I was finding that all the time. And then we were trying to figure out, what do we call this white paper? Well, do we call it CICD or what do we want to do? And uh, at the time, there was a whole bunch of... My phone's going off. Uh, at the time, there was a whole bunch of stuff being published around how to use these solutions for Linux environments and strictly cloud environments and things like that. There, there was not. There was some, but not a ton of information around 
how to use infrastructure as code and uh, you know continuous integration when managing uh, Microsoft core infrastructure solutions. So that's really where we focused when writing that paper. And so we use the name release pipelines uh, to kind of cue to people, hey, you know, just like we call it release pipelines, looking at this uh, Visual Studio type environments and TFS, let's apply that same type of stuff into Microsoft infrastructure. Very cool. Hey guys, it's Josh. So one of the things that you mentioned was configuration and uh, there's this desired state configuration or DSC thing floating around out there. What, what What's that all about? So this is Mark. Desired state configuration is um, a feature of PowerShell that allows you to declaratively state what you want a system to look like. So it's used for configuring in-guest configuration. Um, so one of the things that um, where ARM and DSC play together, um, as Michael and Stephen both um, mentioned, um, ARM is used to kind of do that whole, the, um, well, a lot of times it's used for that provisioning and deployment steps where you get the, you get your um, load balancer set up, you get your machines provisioned, you get the operating system installed on those things, and then you want to stand up SQL on those machines, um, and you want to do that in a declarative way, and you want to make sure that it stays that way. DSC is then used and can can be kicked off by ARM to actually configure SQL, get, config, or get SQL installed, get it configured, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it plays very nicely in that whole world with ARM. Um, and in addition to, um, or one of the other benefits to DSC um, as opposed to some um, imperative script is it make, can make sure that um, your system stays that way. Um, so if you have configuration drift or anything like that, DSC can put it back. So if you have someone go behind or outside of the code and make a change to IIS um, that breaks the system, DSC can make sure that it gets put back. Um, so it is running on the system um, in the background and can make sure that your system stays in the state that you said it should be in. And there's also a, a DSC service available on Azure. So uh, as you're walking through the process Mark just described, you can actually bootstrap nodes, whether they be on-prem or on AWS or in Azure. Uh, you can bootstrap them to the Azure DSC service. And at any point in time, you can come back and see what state they're in. You can look at the individual components of their configuration. So if it's supposed to add IIS to the box, you can verify from a browser across however many nodes you want um, that yes, IIS is on these boxes and it's configured correctly and so on and so forth. Uh, and DSC is also, so when DSC was originally being constructed, we wanted it, we we're looking at, okay, there's all these great configuration as code solutions uh, for other platforms. What does this look like to bring it to Windows? Well, Windows is a very API-rich environment. So the way that you interact with the registry is different than the way you interact with the file system versus you know WMI and Active Directory and IIS and so on and so forth. They've all kind of got their unique uh, methods of interacting with them programmatically. So with DSC, since everything is configuration as code and then you have PowerShell handling the unique interactions uh, as you go through it, it makes Windows Server really fit into this type of philosophy very well. And then you've got the community contributing uh, resources for all of these different components, building out interesting solutions. And then you can have people like Chef and Puppet and Ansible and every other uh, platform who might be interested in providing a configuration as code solution that spans different operating systems. And they can now interact uh, with Windows servers the same way they would interact with any other platform as just configuration as code just declared this is what should be on that node and uh, this is mark again one of the other things that you get from the dscs and chefs and puppets and stuff like that i actually came from the group policy world um so i apologize for everybody that still uses group policy um, but um group policy was awesome it allowed you to manage your environments and basically add a server and have that server get configured and stuff like that automatically. But one of the big problems with it is the complexity and just not knowing. So you add a server and what's that server going to have when it's done? Um, you don't really know. So we had to create an RSOP and stuff like that. So you have a best guess of what that system's going to look like. Where you have these declarative um, systems saying this is what the system is going to look like, you know ahead of time that this system is going to be configured this way. 
Um, and DSC will make sure that it's put that way. And if there are any conflicts or anything like that, like if you say, um, if someone comes in and adds um, a configuration item that says set this registry key to five, and there's another uh, configuration item that says set it to four, DSC is going to tell you immediately that this is not right, something's wrong, fix it. Uh, not something's wrong, it'll tell you that there's a conflict, um, and so you have to fix that. So you know ahead of time that you have um, a conflict and you have to fix it, where in a group policy world, you would basically have last writer wins. So if there's a conflict, whatever ran last wins. Um, so you get out of those kinds of issues as well with these kinds of DSC and Chef um, solutions. Hi, this is Gordon. Um, just the, the term like infrastructure as code, like it, it like makes my brain all twitchy and stuff because uh, you've got infrastructure there, which is RTA, and you also mentioned code, which is devs. Like who would generally write the code for infrastructure as code? Hey, Rob, I think this might be be right up your alley. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's DevOps, right? So if you've got the, the expertise on the ops side, great. If you've got expertise on the dev side, uh, I think either is capable of doing it. I think in most cases, though, you, you see the developers uh, kind of jumping at that and, and building some of that. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Chef, Puppet, and DSC. Uh, a lot of times I get the question, well, which one should I use? And, uh, you know, they, a lot of – they all really – uh, provide a lot of the same functionality in being able to configure nodes in an automated way. But what what's neat about some of uh, Chef and Puppet and some of those is they've been around a little bit longer than DSC, right? So they've got a, uh, more more features they can offer. Uh, a lot of them are, are more enterprise grade type features, but uh, like Steve alluded to, I really geek out on the test driven development side of things with this. And, and what's neat is Chef uh, really provides a great testing engine so that you can write your tests uh, first and then implement the, the cookbook changes or the DSC resource changes to, uh, to apply that change to the node and then verify that it did it correctly. So you get that red green, red green type of workflow. You get a really quick feedback loop going. And so it's neat to use some of those tools. And what's great is uh, Chef supports DSC, right? So for Microsoft Ops and Dev Shops, uh, they can utilize all the great DSC resources out there from Microsoft and, the, and the, the huge PowerShell community that they're building these things to make it really easy to configure things like SQL Server and uh, domain controllers and Exchange servers. Uh, they've really made it easy with those DSC resources. You can leverage all of those within Chef and then use the other tooling within Chef, like the testing engines, Kitchen, and uh, the different things they have there to, to make a, a nicer workflow for developers or ops, whoever's building those things. But I, I think it's it's well within reason to say that the ops folks can do this too. And so I, I was at the PowerShell Summit uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about that and uh, with, with more operations types folks. And uh, it, was, it was really great to see the feedback from that and how excited they get about being able to, to develop uh, configuration code. It seems like it's whoever gets there first. I mean, the, bar- yeah, the, yeah. the barrier to entry is pretty low. Um, this, everybody, it seems like every operations team has at least somebody who's pretty skilled at scripting. Um, so it's like once they get a hold of it and they realize that you know this is a pattern that results in being able to go home after a maintenance window or maybe not even needing to have a maintenance window uh, and you know kind of the power behind that or the comfort behind that, and it starts building up momentum. I've seen it come both where the app developers want to include it and they're asking the ops guys um, to kind of help with that effort or get behind the effort. But honestly, and, and this is probably because I tend to interact more with the operations teams, um, a lot of times I find the operations guys are going to the application developers and saying, hey, we're starting to do infrastructure as code. We're interested in working together with you so that as you release applications, you know, we're all speaking the same language. How can we come to the same table and figure this out, um, which is really awesome. I mean, watching that happen is just a phenomenal change, um, you know, especially in the Microsoft infrastructure environment. Uh, you know, the, I mean, if you think back to history, the certifications around this stuff and the training mechanisms have all been uh, that you build these things out manually. And so now we're seeing this shift where the training and the preparedness is all starting to shift towards configuration as code. But the people have to go through that transition. And uh, the people who have the spirit to go first are just really, really doing great. It's awesome to watch. So I mentioned in my bio, we've got the DSC configurations repo now. 
the resource. So DSC has resources and configurations. You can think about the resources as the building blocks. So registry, file, uh, you know, there's, there's modules around Exchange and SharePoint and Active Directory, and you can imagine all that. But those are kind of like the building blocks. And we've had, we've got hundreds and hundreds now of uh, available resources. I forget the total count. I think it went up past 700. Um, but if you are, if you are not a scripter, so you're, you're just wanting to put these together, you might be wanting to rely on someone else to author the resources that kind of do that heavy duty lifting. Like we actually have to sit down and write a good script and have it test, you know, be uh, testable at the script function level and things like that. But maybe if you don't have a scripting background, you just want to assemble those building blocks in more interesting ways. What we're trying to do with the DSC configuration repo, and we're building this thing out, you know, in, in open source and public eye. So it's really uh, in the very beginning of this is to say, okay, now that we've got all those resources published, let's start having people, even if you don't have really in-depth scripting expertise, start putting together configurations, which means take the building blocks. It's like opening up the package of Legos and saying, how do I, you know, who can put this together in an interesting way that nobody's thought about yet? And I think as that continues, you'll even see those become composable where you say, okay, well, here's a part of a configuration that maybe handles getting IIS stood up in a very repeatable way. Well, if that becomes just a kind of a chunk or like a composable piece of uh, a reusable configuration, you can publish that out as what we call composite resources, uh, or you could even just hand it off to somebody as a script sample, and they can start including that and accelerate their ability to say, okay, well, now it's really easy to predictably create a web server that you know everybody agrees on as a good getting started point. Well, now I can go back and focus on my organizational policies. So security team might be telling me that there's a, you know, an immediate security issue and we've got to change this registry key or close this port and how do we know if it affected our environment? And you can get to those results more quickly uh, by starting with example existing samples, start integrating your company's organizational policy, and then use that test-driven development cycle to evaluate the, what happens whenever you make changes. And it's like, it, it really starts driving itself before too long. This is very cool. Yeah, we've got to um, got to get start wrapping up, unfortunately. But this is I'm saying this is one of the uh, this is a great show. Who who'd have thought having the entire audience on for Radio TFS would be <laughs> have the best show ever? But uh, just a couple of questions to wrap up. Uh, um, first of all, looking forward, everyone's talking about containers and Kubernetes and Docker and uh, you know container swarms and things. How how do how do containers change all this? How do you know how do how does infrastructure as code work with containers? So. so I'd, I'll, I'll be very quick. Um, so from my perspective, I think one of the things that it does for containers is it um, it moves up where the configuration happens in the process. So you have typically in the process, you have kind of in a CI pipeline, you have a build and then you have a deploy and then you have a configure and the whole DSC and Chef and all of those things play in the configure piece. So the you provision the system, it's up, it's running, and now I'm going to go configure the thing. When you have containers, it pulls that back, that configuration step back to the build process. So during build, I can use DSC or Chef or what have you to do the same thing I would have done in that configuration step in the pipeline, but in the build process. So as I'm building that container, I'm getting it configured, that container's done, and then I can just go do the or the deployment step of that container. So it just kind of pulls that up ahead. I think one of the other things that it allows you to do if you take advantage of DSC and Chef and Puppet and things like that in um, the containers is it allows you to actually um, build more easily build other containers. So, for example, um, I have um, a MySQL container and some other container that I want to put together. There's no real easy way to do that in the current way of doing it, but if you're taking advantage of DSC or Chef or Puppet or, or what have you, you can just take the two configurations from those two things and then spin up your own container very easily. Um, so it, there's some benefits to doing that. So. Yeah, Mark is, uh, this is Steve, Mark is pretty, is pretty right on. There's another there's another area, though, where config management comes into play is these systems have to run on an OS somewhere, and that OS will need some configuration. 
And it, whether it's we have to get the network stack right, or we have to point it to the right store, you know, the right storage, or there's good, there's there's some level of configuration we have to get our our logging set up and configured right. Um, but we have to do something to manage that uh, that infrastructure that the containers are running on. And uh, it's not a huge role to play, but it's a ro- it's a role that doesn't go away. Right, you know, even as we even as we have things like serverless and all that, there's still serv- somebody is doing the management. It's you know, maybe it's a slightly different group, maybe it's maybe it's a service provider, but somebody's going to be doing config management to manage these things. And um, uh, you know, kind of a, there's a, a kind of a scary aspect to containers as well when we talk about config management and and what people are putting in them. Um, like if you look on the Linux side of things, right, um, is uh, there's a a lot of folks will like do like from Ubuntu in their Docker file, and they've just taken a whole user land of an operating system and shoved it into a container to support an application, right? And, um, and and so once we start getting containers deployed, we start really coming into a security and auditability problem because who knows what's in these containers, right? There's no standard way of, of identifying all of the components inside a particular container what particular libraries and applications using um, there's a, there's a, a host of, of compliance related challenges that, you know, we start hitting once we get into it, once we try to get into a place of where we're going to operate these containers. And so if we're using config management, number one, we have a, a pretty solid understanding of what's actually in that container, how that container has kind of evolved to be, and we have to evolve that configuration over time. And so we still want to apply the same good practices of I want to have my configurations of my of what my containers look like in source control. I want to, I want to be able to refactor them as needed, that kind of thing. And so the, even in a container world, there's still places where infrastructure is code and these operations practices come into play. And, um, I, and they don't go away. They just kind of shift around. Uh, as Mark said, in order, you move it up a little bit, you move it a little to the left in the pipeline. And um, it also changes, you know, just as far as what systems you're targeting. It seems like we could do some publishing there. <laughs> I think the other day, somebody was asking about uh, what we could do after the release pipeline white paper. But uh, there's so many areas we could cover. But that's an interesting one. It doesn't seem like it's getting talked about a whole lot. But it's, uh, you know, if, if the, we were talking about should it be the developer or the operations person, well, if a developer is very excited about putting their application in containers and getting that out the door as quickly as possible, then like the operations person is going, whoa, 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 like, we're still being audited here. So either we have to make sure the machine is passing for stigs or maybe it's got to process credit card transactions or what have you. You know, how do we make sure that we're on the same page? But if everybody's pulling out of the same source control, and I think about it like this big funnel where at the bottom of the funnel, the tests have to pass before it's released into production. And everybody's putting it into the same wide top at the funnel, and it can't go out the bottom until all the tests pass. Uh, then, like the the operations people can say, "Oh, we, here's our regulatory policies expressed as code," and then the apps guys are saying, "Oh, here's our latest containers going onto the hosts that have been configured using that code." And you know, it's just, it at least puts us on the right path to success. Regulatory processes as tests. I love that. Yeah. So we got a pro- we actually have a project on that over at Chef. Uh, it's uh, Inspec, and there's it's a modeling language for modeling your audit controls as code. So you can move that. So 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 developers can spin up a uh, local test environment and test to validate the in- environment they're testing against is compliant, like it would be in production, right? Because the the further left that we can catch these challenges and problems. The cheaper they are to resolve, the faster they are to resolve, right? Finding the, finding out in production that, oh, hey, we have to apply this regulatory control is the absolute worst possible place <laughs> to find it. It's the most expensive. It's the most intrusive. And it, it, it ties up the most resources in personnel and time and, and money. And so the, the further to the left we can move these things, the, the better off we are. So the more we can express this code, the more we can integrate them into our CI pipelines, the better off we are. Right, and, and so you know, one of the reasons I I, uh, I kind of pinged y'all about the about doing the show is that you know the, the CI tooling that is talked about you know show after show here is totally uh, applicable to these types of scenarios as well, right? And infrastructure's code isn't just an additional folder that you tack on; it is something that needs to go through this whole process as well, and can provide a ton of benefits to our our our. our CI pipeline. You know what, gentlemen? 
I think this was one of our top top ten shows. I, I hate to start wrapping it up. I, I'm really. We, I think we could go on for another hour and <laughs> still not be done. But um, we're trying to keep it within that hour block, and so it's time to start wrapping it up. But first, how can how can is there like some good resources, good place where people can go get started? Sure, yeah. I'll give the link. It, there's a uh, there's a short code to our white paper. It's aka.ms/slash/the-release-pipeline-model. Or if you want an even shorter code, there's aka.ms slash TRPM for the release pipeline model. Uh, and we published it uh, a while back, and we saw it cruise right past 10,000 downloads. And we're like, wow, this is a lot of interest in this subject. And we've been uh, going out and talking about it ever since. And it's been really great to see the response from the community. It's, it's awesome. really, really humbling. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, whenever, anytime I run into somebody and uh, they say, yeah, we really appreciated the white paper and, you know, we're actually using these concepts now in our organization, boy, that is a humbling experience. We're like, wow, all right, well, so, something got done today. Slightly frightening as well. One other area I'd suggest for getting started is, uh, you know, go take an ops guy to lunch. <laughs> and, 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 you know, hand them the white paper or, you know, and, and start fi- finding out what, what do they use for source control, if they're using source control at all. You know, uh, Puppet Labs has done a, a, a very nice favor to us all by publishing the state of DevOps reports. And uh, in one of the earlier ones, one of the, one of the things that they concluded was one of the most critical uh, components to organiza- IT organizational success, as well as overall organizational success, was if the ops team used source control. If your ops guys aren't using source control, offer to offer to do a little lunch and learn with them uh, on how on how to get started. You know, maybe get maybe get them some uh, client licenses into your uh, TFS infrastructure, or help them stand up a Git server or something. Uh, start including them in you know and bringing some of these patterns and practices of how to stand up a CI pipeline. Well, even if it's just hey, get your stuff into source control. We'll set up a pipeline to drop it onto your jump server in, in the production environment. And so the path to getting any code deployed into production, any scripts deployed into production environments is they have to go to source control first. So it's not, hey, did you run the script off of the share over there? Oh, not in that folder, but the one the, the, the one that's uh, two sub-levels down. Uh, and, you know, the dot old, but not the dot old dot old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, that, that that's not a conversation you want to be having, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to get a system back into, into, into production. So, you know, getting, uh, you know, getting the ops guys working with source control, getting a pipeline in place. And then now you can start doing fun stuff in that pipeline You can start adding linting you can start adding some unit tests and, and, and growing the code quality as they continue to mature their practices and make sure they're ready to work with, uh, work with the devs on infrastructure as code initiatives. Make sure they're ready to, to adopt like ARM templates and, and things like that because um, it, it's a joint effort, right? And the from when, when you come from the dev side of things, it's it's a lot easier to start thinking about uh, you know uh, source control, build pipelines, refactoring, uh, tested testing uh, uh, from a standpoint of uh, automated testing. When you come from the ops side, you're bringing in uh, your experience with how infrastructure works, what components you need, how, uh, the networking capabilities they have between them, what kind of uh, port openings you need, uh, routing re- requirements. You know, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of tribal and domain knowledge uh, on both sides, and you know, it, it, by by bringing some of that experience uh, from the dev side of how you apply, you know, how you can apply that to infrastructure's code, and then bringing the operations knowledge over you end up with a much more stable environment. You start seeing things that like really match up to, uh, there's a great book uh, called Release It from uh, Michael Maggard. And it's got a bunch of like uh, patterns and anti-patterns for building production ready software. Well, you go talk to your ops folks and guess what? You're going to start learning what they need to operate the software. And because they're going to, they're not going to be shy about letting you know what's a real pain. Right. <laughs> Exactly. That, you know, even I think Brian Keller even sold me on that one once. It's that DevOps is making your development process operational or operate operatable that, you know, it, it's not just all this automation infrastructure's code is to make sure that your application can actually go to and 
be supported by the operations, thinking about those other guys and bringing both of them together, both sides of that together. That's the, the, the dream I have of DevOps. Well, because uh, at the end of the day, you're the, the, the same company is paying both, both of you and they're, pay, and they're paying both of you to deliver IT results, right? Whether it's software for your customers, whether it's software for internal use, uh, whether it's something to drive machines in a factory. And despite the you know, disparity of incentives in, in an organization like ops being incented to keep the, everything stable and developers being incentivized to deliver features. Um, and guess what breaks that stability? New features. Uh, you know, instead, it, when you come together and, hey, we our, our end goals are actually the same. And we, we, we need to, we need to, you know, make a business outcome of this. It's not that we get to use config management and do cool stuff. It's that we get to deliver cool, cool, uh, we get to deliver business value more stable, uh, faster for our, our business, keeping our jobs, getting us promoted, all that kind of cool stuff. On that note, I think we're going to call it a show. Definitely. I just, wanna, I just wanted to wrap up, Greg, just chip in with Go ahead. Uh, the top, uh, the Stack Overflow survey, talking about the puppet survey, the Stack Overflow survey that came, moves up lately, DevOps Professionals was the top paid uh, career. So there you go. <laughs> and another thing with that Stack Overflow survey, um, the last point to finish on is amusing, is uh, we're talking about version control. If you add up, I don't use version control and zip file backups and copy pasting to network file shares. It's basically <laughs> not version control. Then 8.5% of people aren't really using version control compared with 73 who are using TFVC and 70% that are using Git. So uh, there we go. Uh, there's some numbers for you. And we'll wrap up the show. All right, gentlemen, again, I really appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, listeners, you guys want to give us some feedback, send us an uh, email at radiotfs at outlook.com via Twitter at radiotfs. And that's how we got the show started here was just a, a, a DM. They said, hey, let's talk about this. And, you know, we got this started. So this show was all about feedback about the show. We're on Facebook at slash radiotfs and voicemail one four two five two three three eight three seven nine and again gentlemen i really appreciate you being on and listeners you thank you for listening to radio tfs